Welcome to another episode of Everyday El Dorado. I'm your host, Deanna Bond, and I'm here to share my perspective on the fine art of living well every day in El Dorado. Celebrating 150 years in El Dorado is brought to you by Everyday El Dorado in conjunction with Golden Road Studios, the Butler County Historical Society, home of the Kansas Oil Museum, the City of El Dorado, KBTL 88.1 The Grizz, and our series sponsor, Linda Baines, Realtor with Sun Group Real Estate and Appraisal. We're so very grateful for the support that makes this series possible. Welcome back to the third episode here on Everyday El Dorado, where we are celebrating El Dorado by turning back the clock of time on a hunt for history. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Deanna Bond, and I'm joined by Suzanne Walenta. Hello. Today, our special guest is Ken Spurgeon. Ken is the historical consultant. Is that the right title? That's the right title here at the Butler County Historical Society, home of the Kansas Oil Museum, and we are really glad that you joined us. I'm, good. I'm glad to be here. For reals, I didn't say that just because it's on the script. I really mean it. Well, good. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here. So we're really excited about today's episode. Are you ready for the title? I'm ready. Another really good one. Good. I need to read it because I'll, I'll forget otherwise. Free State or Bust, <laughs> the Political Climate in Kansas Territory, and why the original settlers came to Butler County. It's a great title. It is a great title. It's a great title. <laughs> to say anything otherwise would be bad manners. Oh. Well, I was thinking, how could I how could I uh, shorten it up and it still mean what I wanted to say? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, it's all, it's all gonna work. So celebrating 150 years in El Dorado is brought to you by Everyday El Dorado in conjunction with Golden Road Studios, the Butler County Historical Society, home of the Kansas Oil Museum, the City of El Dorado, and our series sponsor is Linda Baines with Sun Group Real Estate and Appraisals. We are very grateful to have the support that makes this series possible. Our community is marking the 150th anniversary of El Dorado's incorporation as a city of the third class, which happened on September 12th, 1871. And while September 12th is the day we officially recognize as our city's founding, and will be observed by businesses, organizations, and events throughout the year long celebration. It was not the first time our town was incorporated. That's correct. El Dorado was first incorporated as El Dorado Town Company on February 6, 1858, under an act by the Governor and Legislative Assembly of the Territory of Kansas. Settled and founded through the struggle to establish Kansas as a free state, El Dorado has a rich history that has been buried and lost to the passage of time. This ongoing series will unearth those stories and revive the ghosts of El Dorado's past. As we discover those stories, more questions are bound to arise. We do not claim to have all the answers, but we do have a curiosity to learn, and our goal is to continue asking questions, seeking and uncovering the history of El Dorado. In addition to the topic of the week, we also bring you a headline from the past taken from a historic newspaper. So I know we we started with our newspaper, uh, the Walnut Valley Times, which I I know we'll go back to that, but this week I wanted to do something a little different. So I wanted to go back to kind of the first paper in Kansas territory or 
maybe what I think is the first paper. The earliest paper that I've been able to find is the Kansas Weekly Herald out of Leavenworth. And it was published on September 15th, 1854 for the first time. So issue one, volume one. And uh, when I dug around, did a little research, the earliest I found published, listed as the first paper was in October of that year. So this was maybe about a, a month earlier. So we'll see. I'm really excited about That's it. A great find. I, since I believe this was a first newspaper, I wanted to know a little bit more about it. So I went digging and it was published every Friday, once a week, and it cost $2 an issue. And that seems like an, an awful lot for that seems time. Like a lot. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm thinking they were selling the papers back home, back East to like raise money and let people know what's going on in the territory. Because I can't imagine a lot of settlers and immigrants new to the territory mm -hmm. could afford $2 a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. But I, it, it is curious. I, it was yes. something I was interested in, in knowing more about. So in previous episodes, we read articles from 1870 about the upcoming election that year. And politics was definitely top of mind for Kansas territorial newspapermen in 1854. The first article on page one is a story about the newly installed governor for the territory of Kansas. Governor Andrew Horatio Reeder was appointed governor by President Franklin Pierce. He was sworn in on July 7, 1854, but did not arrive in Kansas territory until October. So this newspaper article was quite possibly the first time many territorial residents learned about the nature of the new governor. Hmm. So I've, I've shared this before. I grew up in Oklahoma and didn't have the benefit of Kansas history. So I'm learning a lot, still have a lot of questions. And the first thing that comes to mind is, I'm wondering, is Governor Reeder pro-slavery or an abolitionist? So that's a good question. Um, he's definitely not pro-slavery and He's from Pennsylvania. He, he leans more free state. Um, it may be a reach to go as far as to say he's an abolitionist, but he's definitely in his politics a free stater. And uh, Kansas has during the territorial period what we call, some people call the graveyard of governors because a governor comes out, tries to do a job. It's an impossible task. Three months, six months later, he's shipped off. A new one comes in. Reader's the first one. Reader probably takes the greatest personal stand of all of those governors, meaning he lets it be known he's a free stater. Um, he's almost loses his life. He ends up running for his life. In fact, he evacuates out of Kansas under the cover of night. So, uh, so Reader's definitely a free stater. He's definitely uh, a northerner. You know, and, then, and there were other. It's not. It's not suffice to say somebody's from the south or the north, because you had northerners who were as big appeasers as anybody, and you had southerners who were law and order. Um, even if they were pro-slavery, so that's why the great. Well, that's why you know the whole graveyard of governors and all is such a mess. Um, I know we may talk about it later, but uh, really, it's a couple of governors in the late 1850s, like John Geary, um, and a couple of others that maybe maybe two or three that really restore order. And uh, and nobody does a great job because it's an impossible task. So, well. I want, when I, what I read of Reader, um, I, I wondered if he was positioned or appointed by Pierce, mm -hmm. um, because Pierce was an abolition or he was pro-slavery, and did he think maybe that Reader would would fall in that camp? So uh, you know, it could be said that Reader's 
this, this is a probably a good point since we're kind of focusing on Bleeding Kansas to say that what happens to a lot of people is you really don't know their politics till they're thrust in the middle. Mm. And till they have to pick, till they have to choose. And uh, not that Reeder wouldn't have been known, but he became more known. And some people came to the area sort of indifferent, but they weren't indifferent in three months because you're going to get pushed and it's hard to sit on the fence. So Pierce was not, I, some people would say Pierce is pro-slavery. He's an appeaser. He wants to keep winning elections mm -hmm. and being in the Democratic Party, he needs to be an appeaser. I don't, I'm not a fan mm -hmm. of Pierce at all, but um, he probably thought Reader would be more law and order than he was. And that's not fair. Reader was law and order, but he probably didn't think that Reader would would show his personal colors. Mm. And Reader did. Right. And you know, that's Reader's admirable for that reason. He's actually a man of conscience. Well, thank you. That was, uh, it, I, I wondered as I'm first learning about this, if what we ended up having kind of that, um, I guess we'll talk a little more about it, but it jumps right to my mind, the, the bogus constitution mm -hmm. to begin with, because there were so many people supposedly pro-slavery and and I wondered it just seemed like maybe they were trying to stack and maybe they I mean the government was trying to stack the deck that way for Kansas before it was a state that they were trying to stack it pro-slavery mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I see that I see that uh, of course both sides politically are coming they know that it's a battleground mm -hmm. they don't know how significant of a battleground it's going to, going to be um, Pierce would have probably wanted to send people more like himself. Mm -hmm. I would say that. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, think about it. We can't control immigration today. There's no way you could control in 1854, mm -hmm. 1855. You, you, so there's no telling who's coming in. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so Pierce is going to end up, I think, appointing three or four of those governors. Mm -hmm. uh, then Buchanan will appoint like three. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that brought up a good point. I, I messaged Suzanne, was it last night? Um, I was looking at the, the map of Kansas. We have that little, looks like a bite mark taken mm -hmm. out of the corner. And I thought, is that where we have immigrants from Missouri encroaching, trying to take up a little more of the ground? Is that why our state isn't, you know, more square? That's more about a river. Well, that is kind of what she, <laughs> she pointed out at some point. I was like, but it did sound like story. a good theory. Isn't yeah, it's it? a great yeah. story. But it's more of a river. Well, that makes more sense to yeah. me. But yeah. but yeah, the the immigration, you know, we, people are coming from all over to, to oh. come in here. Sure. And and that's what we're gonna learn more about today with um, El Dorado and the, the men who were coming here and why they were coming here. Um, and the Missourians who were trying to come here, that um, uh, were they were they wanting to immigrate here or were they just trying to claim as much land as they could? Just kinda sneak it away. Yeah, you want, to answer, you want me to answer that one now? I mean, I don't know. It's just, again, I have all these thoughts. That come so, you know, it's like, it's like a lot of the things that we all talk about in history. It's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You, mm -hmm. you won't get an answer that's the same for everybody. So um, some are coming here, and some are coming over to vote and go back. Mm -hmm. Because no, no slave state's going to want a free state next door. Mm -hmm. That's a recipe for disaster for a slave owner. Okay. So... There's no doubt if you're a slave owner in Missouri, Kansas becoming a free state is a bad is a bad deal. Sure. So yeah, and I think that didn't that escalated. You know, it's as they saw how things were moving, and I know today we won't talk about John Brown, 
But when you get ardent abolitionists that are ready to fight, mm -hmm. that's going to change the game. And you need actually abolitionists that are ready to fight because mm -hmm. you can't, you know, somebody's going to have to do something. Mm -hmm. And so up till this point, and actually up till a couple of years in the bleeding Kansas, it almost looked like the pro-slavery type people were the willing to do use violence. And the abolitionists were praying, seeking, preaching, singing. And that's going to change. It changes in Kansas. Kansas is the place that it changed. Um, where free staters, that's part of why John Brown is so important. Because, uh, you know, he scared people. Mm -hmm. He was willing to die for freedom. And uh, that was important. And, and uh, very much American. Very American. Very independent. You know, very... John Brown wouldn't have cared. I mean, I'm, I'm, I admire John Brown at the same time. I understand he did wrong things mm -hmm. that can't be excused. But uh, John Brown wouldn't have cared if it was the United States or any other name. People matter. Mm -hmm. you know? That's why he's admirable, because people matter more than the name of the country. Mm -hmm. And I think he was about people. And I mean, one historian said that uh, John Brown... Um, Lots of people wrote about it, sang about it, talked about it, but John Brown was willing to do something about it. And the difference is massive. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one person who physically says, I'm going to go risk it all. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, he crosses the line. There's no doubt he crosses the line. But that has a great impact upon pro-slavery people who probably do think they're going to come over and be intimidating. Uh, the intimidation. And then, of course, both sides are guilty mm -hmm. once that that game starts getting played of, you know, attack and r respond, then it gets ugly. Well, thank you. Yeah. That's a lot of food for me for thought. And, and I'm still learning. I'm still learning a lot of stuff. Um, I, I, we have a, we're trying to find a headline from each kind of page in the paper. And this paper is interesting. There's only three pages. So I don't know if someone forgot to, you know, save the back page or if they, they didn't print the back page, maybe they didn't have enough ads or something hmm. um the next the next issue had four pages but this oh. one only three but um on on page two i really liked it that uh, one of the articles it says a short chapter on politics <laughs> suitable for the season and and see uh, suzanne and i were talking uh in our last episode that history repeats itself we're back in a political season again and um and so I thought this was great. I'm not going to read the whole article, but but anybody who wants to take a look at it, it's the September 15, 1854, the Kansas Weekly Herald from Leavenworth. But <laughs> I like the first uh, the the first sentence says, "People who let politics alone live the happiest and are the most respected." <laughs> Still true, maybe. So we're going to talk about politics today and. We won't be respected or happy. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're happy and respected. Um, but yeah, I just, I thought that was interesting. The things that, that that passes news in this paper. So we have an introduction also on page two from the editors. It says introductory. Um, so I, I just thought that was really interesting because obviously it was an editorial. Mm -hmm. It was from the editors, right? And um, and they introduced themselves as being Democrats, but being um, uh, I think you were, maybe that's what you were alluding to when you were talking about Reader and that he was um, a Democrat, but he was also a free state. So maybe he was not pro-slavery necessarily, but for the people 
to I govern. I can talk about that. So, so I guess that was something that kind of came to mind was, we're all Democrats, because I'm trying to understand, it seems like the parties are flip-flopped. And um, I was wondering, are all Democrats pro-slavery? Um, or was there kind of a division, is what I'm understanding? You have like, Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats. I mean, is that kind of... Yes, yeah, so once, you know, once we get... It's complicated. The Whig Party had been a major player from 1820 to about 1850. Well, 1830 to 1850, maybe. The Whig Party is going away. The compromises have led to the from the Missouri Compromise to the Compromise of 1850 to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which is what really puts us in motion. You've had a lot of like political jockeying uh, movement and whatever, and so. A Northern Democrat, the, the saying Northern Democrat and Southern Democrat is almost not applicable yet in 54. It's very applicable by 60. So that's evolution in the Bleeding Kansas period. So what you have instead is you have diversity in the Democratic Party regarding the slave issue, all the way from very pro-slavery to probably ambivalent. Very few people in the Democratic Party are adamantly anti-slavery or outspoken. So what happens is that that element in the country of people who are going to speak against slavery are former Whigs primarily, maybe a Northern Democrat, and they're going to coalesce into the new Republican Party, which is founded in 1854. So many things are happening at that very moment. So in Wisconsin, of, of all places, little town in Wisconsin, they have the first gathering of the Republican Party. You have a lot of people who, I guess we could call them Northern Democrats, they'll be Republicans in three or four years. Uh, and, and Abraham Lincoln is one of those. He's a Whig who will become a Republican. He would not be a Democrat. Um, James, Jim Lane, who's later a famous U.S. Senator, he's a Democrat who in the 1860s will become a Republican. For some of them, it'll take them a long time because they're praying that the Democratic Party will find some sort of a platform that's anti-slavery, but they never will. Um, not a true anti-slavery party, they won't. So the Republican Party is founded on anti-slavery principles. So that's why it's complicated, because you might have somebody who's a Democrat who shows up in Kansas who actually is a future Republican. Mm -hmm. They just haven't yet found their party, because uh, parties are... We're so super entrenched in our parties right now that it's kind of sickening. You know, we can't hardly think outside our parties. Mm -hmm. So, and we, do, and we follow way too easily. These people are much more independent. And part of it's because in 70 years of national history, the parties have already changed several times. Mm -hmm. And even Democratic Party doesn't look like, a Democratic Party in the 1850s doesn't look like the 1830s party, doesn't look like the 1810s party. And uh, like I said, the Whigs are 25-year party, an outgrowth of the former Federalists. So, um, so yeah, so Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats, it's coming officially, but that won't happen until 1860. And when you have that party splitting like that, you're also creating, Northern, many Northern Democrats, most of them will stay union. But they're going to be the people fighting for the union that are fighting for the union. And they're not going to get into slavery very much. But don't sell them out completely. I mean, there's, there, I always think of uh, a Northern Democrat who said, and you've heard this phrase, but he really wrote it. He said a Democrat can stop a bullet as good as a Republican. Um, they were, some of them were very much for the right things. They and again, maybe this is too too much information, but some Northern Democrats who were kind of against slavery didn't want to go as far as to be called an abolitionist. I think even 
Even people like Abraham Lincoln were hesitant to be called an abolitionist for a long time because it almost meant you were so radically right. And that sounds weird, but you they, they thought they'd never win office, elective office if they were called an abolitionist because it was almost like they were way over here. So few people were outspoken about it. People believed it, but a lot of them were outspoken. And of course, in Kansas, we'll have some outspoken people. You know, that was something I was reading about that we maybe had outspoken people, but at some point it was against the law to be outspoken about it here in Kansas. Um, it, and, and I think back to kind of the newspaper article that the editors were writing, they were saying, we're Democrats and we're for, you know, government by the people kind of thing. And, uh, and they weren't actually picking a side as far as, like you were mm -hmm. mentioning, pro-slavery or abolitionists. It was saying, we're going to build a state based on what we all think as a group mm -hmm. and we're Democrats, you know, and he was just, you know, just, they were just stating it, but, um, but not really committing because, and, and that's then, I don't know if it was then or a little bit later, got to research a little more, uh, that it became, and it might've been after Governor Reader, uh, against a lot of speak out against, uh, against slavery. Yeah. We can't understand today how hot that issue was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was so hot. Uh, like one thing that should be in every textbook is a discussion of what they call the gag rule. So for eight years in the United States Congress, you were not supposed to discuss slavery on the floor of the Congress. So I, the only issue I can think through our whole history that even is similar is abortion. And I, and I know people probably get wired for sound when I say that, but it's, it's that kind of issue that it's so heartfelt one way or the other, it's, and it's very polarizing. And slavery was like that. They just thought, oh, my gosh, we just can't talk about this. Mm -hmm. And then people like John Quincy Adams, who won't live to this era, uh, became so angry at the idea that you were going to say in America that there was an issue you couldn't talk about. Mm -hmm. He's like, the essence of freedom is that we can talk about this. Mm -hmm. We've got to keep revisiting it. We've got to keep. So he got frustrated over the fact that you couldn't talk about it, mm -hmm. which is funny, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so in all these compromises, they were about slavery. They were mostly about what people called slavery agitation, which means, is it going to move forward? Is it going to go on? Lincoln thought for a long time, if you arrest the cancer of slavery, then the rest will begin to die. He didn't think he could go take away yours. Mm. He, he, he said that. He said, legally, I don't know if I can tell you to get rid of your own, but I know I can stop where it's not. So in the 1830s and 1840s, he was like, let's stop where it's not. Mm -hmm. That's why Kansas, again, is a big deal, because don't let it go another step. You know, don't go to Kansas. Don't let it go to Nebraska. Don't let it go to Colorado later. So, um, yeah, so that's why it's just, it is complicated. But it was, slavery was such a hot-button issue um, that you know, they tried to get rid of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But there's no way you're going to ever get rid of that conversation. Right. It's too heartfelt. And you're talking about four and five million people, four to five million people. It's a lot of people. And one group thinks they're people and one group thinks they're property. Mm. And you're going to have a problem there. Mm -hmm. And that's that's setting the stage for for what will become El Dorado, because and and I I'm jumping ahead a little, but um, I just like I just like where the conversation's going. You know, um, the men who end up coming to find El Dorado are doing it to expand that free state soil. You know. This is where slavery is not. Let's sure. put a flag in the ground and keep it that way. Right. It is my understanding. Yeah, and the, and the more areas they could people, mm -hmm. you know, the better. 
they say that only about one third of Kansas was founded when we became a state. Mm. You know, it's kind of that northeastern one third. You can go to the center of the north. You can sit, go to the north center part of the state and almost draw a line to the southeast corner. And that third is the third that's going to be mm-hmm. settled, so mm-hmm. to speak. There's an article. So on uh, I, it's on page two also. It's titled How to be, Build a State. And, and it does also, again, read like an editorial, which I think the whole this whole paper right now is just an edit, editorial. It's more, and it's got some advertising and stuff. But um, I thought it was a perfect illustration about why the immigrants were coming to Kansas Territory. And that's, I think, what originally got me thinking about, hmm, that cookie bite out of the corner. You know, they were also encouraging people to come. And so uh, I guess it goes into more questions that I have about so why was everybody mad then when they did come <laughs> and they were trying to make it pro-slavery? Um, and I, 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 I think when you kind of point out they were coming, but they weren't staying. They wanted to keep their territory in Missouri. It was more like they were trying to grow Missouri into Kansas, mm-hmm. right? So that yeah. wouldn't be... I mean, some were coming to stay, but um, yeah. And they realized the numbers. I mean, if you're a northerner, you, all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, if 90% of the immigrants are southern, the state's gone. Mm-hmm. If, and if you're uh, the other way around, you're, if you're southern, you say 90% of the immigrants are northern, state's gone. And uh, and you understand it's all related to the balance of power. You wake up one day and you're a southerner, and suddenly there's 20 Yankee states, 20 free states. Mm-hmm. You're done. Mm-hmm. So they know that. They can see the future. They can, I mean, they can see that part of the future, that the numbers are important. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it right now. If, we, if you're a Democrat and you say, hey, there's going to be 32 Republican states, oh my gosh. And vice versa, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to go. Oh my gosh, the balance of power. Mm-hmm. When we also don't realize in the ideological debate, the balance of power is a good thing. We want the pendulum to move a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to go way up here and stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but an issue like slavery, that's why it's so polarizing. That's not an, a thing that needs to be like this. That's a thing that needs to go away, mm-hmm. and it can't stay in this game anymore. Mm-hmm. So you're going to feel very adamant about. And even though slavery went away, we're still dealing with the after effects of all that even today. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we're not alone. I mean, every place in the world is dealing with issues of subjugation, even though we don't talk about every place in the world. Mm-hmm. Not here. Right. But uh, every place was because subjugation was the natural state mm-hmm. of, that, of those times. Uh, ours was different because it was ours. Mm-hmm. And it was different because it was racial, more racial. Um, because of the introduction of African slavery to that Western Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. You know, there were other countries in the, in the Western Hemisphere that didn't do away with slavery until after us. Um, but anyway, it became so, intr- so, so entrenched into our economic fa- fabric mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, but we're definitely still dealing with it. I always tell my students, uh, civil rights started when the Civil War ended, and mm-hmm. then, it, then it went on hiatus for 90 years. Kind of that that gag, not not officially, but pretty much. Well, we it returned to home rule, and then what they call home rule, which meant states did their own thing, mm-hmm. and that happened until Brown versus BOE, mm. and then we reinaugurated civil rights movement again. So Kansas has always been on the leading edge of things, really. You know, I, I mean, I take kind of pride in that. No, oh, now that I'm a Kansan. I mean, one of the most moving things that I ever saw when I was first studying bleeding Kansas. Mm-hmm was one of the first settlers that was killed in the Bleeding Kansas period. And I'm going to misquote his exact tombstone. But he was a 21-year-old or something. And he was a freestater. 
and he got in the middle of a pro-slavery mob mm. and he got killed and on his tombstone it says that simple phrase you know he died for freedom mm. and you know we can like think well that's just a phrase but he didn't need to die mm. that was a white man that came and said I'm not gonna do I'm not gonna put up with this and he gave his life and how many more like that white and black that gave their lives for freedom and so you can't forget that those people at the same time you can't forget the challenges you know what I mean mm. I mean so so it was uh, yeah that grips at you and as a Kansan yeah I'm, I'm saying that as a 20 some year old I thought we got an awesome legacy mm. we didn't get everything right but we had some people who tried very hard to get it right so you know it could have gone the other way mm-hmm. this is a very good lead-in to today's topic <laughs> like we haven't even, we've talked about some great things and we haven't really got into it just yet we hope you're enjoying today's episode which is brought to you by our series sponsor linda at sungrouprealestate.com and we would love to know your thoughts and comments so if you'll leave us a comment on our Facebook page, Everyday El Dorado, and please subscribe to the podcast or YouTube channel so you don't miss any of these great stories we're covering here on Everyday El Dorado. We're celebrating 150 years in El Dorado. Why would you want to live anywhere else? I know I wouldn't. So in order for us to tell the story of El Dorado, its founding and founders, we need to look at the story of Kansas and its founding and its founders. Ken, will you give us some insight to the Kansas-Nebraska Act of May 30, 1854, which provides for the settlement of the Kansas Territory, as well as a timeline for events that happened in Kansas that led to the Civil War. I know that's a massive question, but... That's a big question. Yeah, you were gonna keep your answers brief. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the Kansas-Nebraska Act was, was written by Stephen Douglas, who was a Democrat from Illinois, and later an opponent of Abraham Lincoln's in the Senate race of 58 and also the presidential race of 60, 1860. Um, there's always the discussion that Douglas had extra motivation because of his interest in economic things in the West, mm-hmm. including the railroad. Some of that may be true, but most of all, he was uh, a politician and he had dreams of national office. So the Kansas-Nebraska Act, essentially, it did allow for the settlement in the territory of Kansas and Nebraska, which at that point, went all the way to today's Canada. Mm. <clears throat> Basically almost like the, not quite the Rockies, but almost the Rockies all the way up to the to the Canadian border. So it was huge. Mm-hmm. Nobody could control that. Nobody could uh, organize that. And nobody ever asked one Native American their opinion. Mm-hmm. As often happened on so many treaties, going back to the Treaty of Tordesillas and a hundred others, nobody asked the natives mm-hmm. what they thought. So, but what it did do, and this is the important piece, is it allowed for popular sovereignty, which popular sovereignty means the will of the people, and no state had ever been allowed, or no territory had ever been organized like that before. The, the term had been in that, in, in some of these compromises, but it never happened. Uh, for example, after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the Mexican-American War, supposedly New Mexico territory, quote unquote, and Utah territory were popular sovereignty. But there was pretty much no one there. So there was no fight. And it was too far away. And the only people that really were settled there outside of Native Americans were Mormons. And they didn't care. They didn't care. And they also were monolithic in the sense that they believed essentially the same thing regarding the difficult issues. Mm -hmm. They weren't like pro-slavery, anti-slavery. They were primarily anti-slavery. And Mormons were not treated very well either. In fact, the 
they did go to the Great Salt Lake, but they weren't necessarily, people were glad to see him go. And I say that uh, as a defensive in, in many ways, religiously speaking. Um, so anyway, popular sovereignty finally hits Kansas and it hits, it hits a part of the country, today's Kansas City, Lawrence, Leavenworth, Lecompton, Topeka, which is only 30 to 60 miles from Missouri, which has been a state for 40 years, or 34 years at that point. So, which means you're gonna get it people. Mm-hmm. That means that's going to be the area that gets people, and that's why that becomes a ground of fighting for uh, people from north and people from south. So over the next seven years, from 54 to 61, about 200 people die in Kansas fighting each other over the issue of slavery or slavery's agitation. Most of those are fights two-on-one, three-on-two, five-on-two. You know, they're not big battles. Mm-hmm. Although the Battle of Blackjack in 1856 is what I consider to be the first time people from the North and people from the South fought each other over slavery. So in many ways, that's the first battle of the Civil War era. That happened near today's Baldwin City, about 10 miles from Lawrence, 15 miles from Lawrence. Um, So yeah, and everybody in the world was watching. I mean, the London Times headline, War in Kansas. So it was the only time in our history, in the state's history, where we were on the front page of every newspaper because how Kansas went might be how the country was going to go. What was it going to lead to? You know, and famous people came here. Presidential candidates came here in 1860, including Abraham Lincoln, King Leavenworth. Um, John Greenleaf Whittier wrote about it. You know, Longfellow. These people were writing about Kansas. And, I mean, even the famous speech was given on the floor of the U.S. Senate called The Crimes Against Kansas. And then the next three days later, a United States senator was beaten nearly to death because because that senator, Charles Sumner, said uh, Kansans and free staters were being hammered, were being annihilated. The president of the United States couldn't get control. The military didn't know what to do. Sometimes the military would come out and arrest people and then hold them for a week and let them go. It, 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 again... My, one of my mentors, Dr. Miner, used to say, remember when you're discussing Bleeding Kansas, that what is legal is not always what is right. And it, it always, that line always stuck with me because I just went, whoa, that really is true. Um, you want what legal, what is legal to be, right? but it's not always. History bears that out over and over and over again. Laws get made that are immoral, and, uh, and you don't want that. And we're a nation of laws and not a nation of men. And therefore, that's why being a nation of laws what law we decide upon really matters. That's why we battle them so hard. So uh, uh, that's an attempt at a summary of it all. No, it's a good summary. That is, and you brought up a a couple of things that come to mind. You talked about the people's sovereignty and- um, Popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty. And how is that related to squatter sovereignty? Is that kind of the same same concept? Sovereignty. Just sovereignty in general. No, you're good. Um, is it is people sovereignty the same as squatters? Okay, that's a great question actually, because uh, popular sovereignty w- means the will of the people, whoever the people are that are the citizens. Mm-hmm. When you say squatter sovereignty, you're talking about the will of the landowner or the or the uh, the homesteader, person occupying the land. The at person the occupying the land at the moment. Um, and people could say, well, they're one and the same. I think they're a bit different because I think claiming land versus legal rights is a little different. Now you're get, like we're getting into like legal history, which is a little more challenging. Mm-hmm. But, that's, but here's the important point. This is why when you get to the point of voting irregularities, mm-hmm. 
you don't want people voting who aren't claiming land. You know, our, our founders had that moment where they discussed whether or not owning land should be a qualification for voting. Mm-hmm. We all now go, oh my gosh, that's a terrible idea. But you got to understand, if you don't claim land, you might not stick around, mm-hmm. and especially in this era. Mm-hmm. And you don't want people who, who show up, do something bad, get out. Mm-hmm. Show up, vote, get out. You don't want people like that. You want the people who are going to be here. You know what I mean? To be invested in. To be in. invested mm-hmm. in. So that's why squatter sovereignty mm-hmm. is a big deal because you want the people who are going to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think of the old, the later Homestead Act, which says if you go and get on a claim of land, you mark off 160 acres, four quarter sections, you stay on it for five years, you make improvements, you register it, you own it mm-hmm. at the end of five years. Mm-hmm. That's making a claim. And you, uh, you got to stay on it. Mm-hmm. You can't make a claim, make a claim, make a claim. You know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then it's all false claims. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's that was a challenge for these these both these sides. They couldn't just come fight. They couldn't just come vote mm-hmm. and then bug out. You know, mm-hmm. they gotta they gotta squat and stay put. Okay, yeah, that that brings up a whole host of other questions. Um, squatters versus residents, immigrants versus, like you said, bogus, non, non-residents, non-squatters. Sure. You know, uh, for me, and, and I can see why that was a real hot button, you know, that was, it, the, it was the thing that was, I mean, aside from the slavery and pro-slavery or anti-slavery, it was about who was going to own that land, who was going to take title to it, who was mm-hmm. going to say, we're, we're running the show. Mm-hmm. And what's the saying? Real estate, real estate, real estate, or location, location, location. It, it's always been that, mm-hmm. right? So I w- was thinking about that, um, about the, the squatter sovereignty principle, and I wondered how that how that played in because um, uh, what I've been learning and what I'm reading here to remind myself is that in in order for the um, the anti-slavery, pro-slavery to to compete. Um, in populating this new territory, they had to come. They had to immigrate. They had to to recruit people, right? To come, sell everything and come start a new life. And mm-hmm. maybe there were people who really wanted to. And maybe there were some people like, eh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they maybe they came for the cause. Maybe they came for themselves. Maybe they didn't, you know, care about the cause. They just want to look for a new place to. Mm-hmm. No, everybody probably had their own reasons for coming to Kansas. Um, and so I started learning about the immigrant aid societies mm-hmm. I'd never heard of that before never which it's so pivotal to our story and El Dorado and so um, could you tell us a little bit about just kind of oh you don't have to keep it brief you can talk mm-hmm. as much as you want we had such a great conversation with Ken and we had to break it up into two parts so we are going to stop here and we'll pick up next week with the immigrant aid society and so much more again You do not want to miss these conversations with Ken because it is filled with so much great information about the surrounding times in Kansas that led our founders to El Dorado. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Celebrating 150 years in El Dorado is brought to you by Everyday El Dorado in conjunction with Golden Road Studios, the Butler County Historical Society, home of the Kansas Oil Museum the City of El Dorado, KBTL 88.1 The Grizz, and our series sponsor, Linda Baines, Realtor with Sun Group Real Estate and Appraisal. 
We're so very grateful for the support that makes this series possible. Be sure to tune in each week on Wednesday at 12 o'clock on KBTL 88.1 The Grizz locally or streaming online by visiting kbtl.butlercc.edu. And in the words made famous by Paul Harvey, you'll be able to hear the rest of the story. All views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the individuals expressing them and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or positions of Butler Community College or KBTL 88.1 The Grizz, El Dorado, Kansas, Radio for Butler. What up, history? (laughs) (laughs) All the books. All I know to say is, Kinsess, you think he'll want a t-shirt? here on Everyday El Dorado, but keep an eye out and an ear open for your source of information on the fine art of living well every day in El Dorado. Have a great day. No, I'm not a writer. Okay.